Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Professor Carenza Jennings. Carenza is a senior advisor at BT, an award-winning strategist, storyteller, non-exec director. She specializes in purpose, data, and digital impact. Wow. There's so many things that I'm looking forward to hearing from you today. (laughs) Where should we start? How would you like to land in the podcast Oh, thank you, Claire. It's really, really nice to be here today. And hello, everyone who's listening. Well, I suppose the thing about me is that I've had a really, really squiggly career. I've done all sorts of things and I've always just followed my heart, really. I've tried to do I've tried to do projects where I feel like I can make a difference. And I've always, always been led as well by trying to work with amazing people. I really love being inspired by people. So I've done all sorts of things, but I would describe myself probably as a storyteller is my core kind of gift to the world. I I tell stories and I spent a long time as a television producer and I used the skills of listening, curiosity, understanding the world, trying to help people understand the world. Those sorts of skills I then translate and use in all the work I've done since. So I moved into strategy at the BBC, having been a television producer for a really long time. And I ended up working in digital projects. So I'd gone from editorial work, like being the programme editor of Breakfast with Frost, with David Frost, and having been the the BBC's election results editor and having made paleontology programmes with David Attenborough and done all kinds of incredibly exciting things in the world of creation and, and production. Moving into strategy at the BBC for five years as the BBC's head of strategic delivery and had the opportunity to work on three really big strategies there. And that led me to work at, as you said, you know, worked at the Royal Household, Buckingham Palace, worked on a big digital programme there, setting up an awards programme. And now I'm at BT and I'm, I'm delighted to be also working for another iconic institution. So I sort of had the, the great privilege of working at the BBC, working for the Royal Family and now at BT, all of whom have been in my life ever since I can remember. So I guess that's how I'm landing. It's, I'm a storyteller with a really squiggly career. I love that, a squiggly career. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I wonder how many other people might describe their career like that. Um, so the storyteller piece, say mm-hmm. some more about that. What an interesting way to describe yourself. Well, ever since I was a little girl, I have always wanted to tell stories. And I've always been a real magpie in the world. I've loved kind of collecting inspiration from all sorts of places. And I started writing poems and little short stories pretty much ever since I could hold a pencil. I mean, I really did. And I love telling stories as well. I use the the kind of process of narrative and how you can engage people. Obviously, in a more professional sense, when I was a professional storyteller working in programme making, but also I've I've written a book. I'm the author of a psychological thriller and I write poetry. But also in the kind of work I do where I engage audiences and different stakeholders, so I always try to think of the what's in it for me, for the person I'm talking to or for the audience I'm trying to connect with. Yeah. What do they care about? Why should they be bothering to listen? Why should they be bothering to watch? Why should they be bothering to engage with the digital content that I've created? What's the thing that might work for them? And thinking from a kind of psychological angle like all the different types of personalities that we have, the different preferences we have. Some people love 
engaging with content on a visual level, some love auditory, some kind of aesthetic. I'm thinking about all the different types of people out there, the types of content to connect with them. But what is true with the greatest content is that if it touches you and if it gives you something useful and interesting, then you're a lot more likely to continue to engage with it. So I think story underpins great content across the great products and services that we see today in the world. But it's completely true all the way back to when human beings gathered around fires and told each other stories to either keep each other feeling safe or planning journeys ahead or working out where to go and hunt. You know, we, we tell each other stories to try to make sense of the world. And can you imagine being in a part of the world where you saw the, the aurora borealis and you didn't understand the scientific explanation for it? Imagine what you would have thought to try to make sense of that. Imagine trying to make sense in prehistory of, of the moon and the sun rising every day, rising and going and rising and going, imagining our, our place on the earth. We, we make sense of the world around us using story. Mm. And I have just always loved that sense of helping craft a narrative around whatever the thing is to help create those incredible connections between people. Oh, I'm thinking about the power of storytelling and the use of metaphor in terms of thinking mm. about one thing in terms of another. And I think we do that exactly as you say, we do that in life, Jamie. How does that translate, do you think, into the world of organisations and business mm -hmm. and leadership? If you're able to make something feel relatable to whoever you're talking to, that could be using metaphor, it could be using example, it could be displaying your own vulnerability and your own fears and your own worries and anxieties, helping someone feel like they're less alone in the problem that they're facing or helping you find ways of empowering them so that they do their best work and unlock their potential by sharing the mistakes that you've made and things that you feel that you've learned from. I think as a leader, it makes you much more relatable because you're, you're a human being who's kind of on a level playing field. You might be further along in your career and you might have the opportunity right here, right now mm. to be senior to that person. But who knows what that person could go on to become? I mean, that person could really fly with your help mm. and you can be the wind beneath their wings. Helping them see that they've got it within their grasp and helping them unpack what the barriers may be. And again, story can really help with that. If you ask them quite open questions, rather than imposing your view and your opinion about what they could or should do, make it your starting point, trying to get them to tell you what they think the answer is and then you can help shape the way that you interact with them with the questions and the answers to try to steer them to understanding their own resolution and the journey that they want to take whether it's solving an immediate crushing problem or something a little bit more long term people always feel far more empowered if they feel that they've got to the answer themselves well there's something really coming up for me around the connection between storytelling and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how someone relatively inexperienced in maybe their one of their first leadership roles, sort of, you know, new to it, promoted from their peer group perhaps. I wonder how they gain the confidence to start that process and show themselves as being, you know, uniquely human and vulnerable and ready to share their learning in the terms of the story. It's really hard. And I think when you first step into a leadership position, 
I think most of us have a little bit of imposter syndrome and most of us feel, Mm. do I really deserve to be here? What am I doing here? Am I really capable of doing this? And so you do have a lot of insecurities yourself. And I think what you need to do is is trust that you've been put into that position for a reason. And I'll give you an example from my own background. I was working at Sky News back in 1998 and I was 27 years old. John Riley, who's now the head of Sky News, was my boss at the time. After I'd been there a number of months, he said he'd like to get me doing executive producer shifts. And at Sky, particularly in that era, most of the executive producers were men in their 40s and 50s. And I didn't know what to think about this. And I wasn't sure if it was a bit of a joke. And I wasn't quite sure if it was something I could do. I was quite terrified, actually. I was genuinely quite scared. And I remember going in for my very first shift and wearing my favourite pink T-shirt <laughs> and um, and little black hipsters and just thinking, I'm just going to have to be me. I'm just going to have to trust that I've got this gig for a reason. I don't fully understand it. I'm not sure that I feel I deserve it, but I just have to do my best. And I came in for quite a lot of ribbing in the first while. It was quite a macho place in those days. And for the first few weeks when I was when I was doing it, I, there was a little bit of ribbing, but I just quietly got on with doing what I thought the job was and understood the job to be, and did quite a lot of taking counsel from people about you know how could I be better, what could I be doing, and I think I just over time it didn't take me all that long actually. I think probably less than a month really did earn their respect. A lot of them were kind of older men who I think were a little bit put out that I'd been given the opportunity mm. and all thought it was a bit of a joke. And I just quietly thought, I just need to, I just need to do my job. You know, I, I have a huge amount of professional pride and anyone who's ever worked with me will know that I'm a real stickler for doing my best and trying to make the best possible outcomes and trying also to inspire my teams to be the best they can be. Mm. That's been always incredibly important to me. So putting myself back into the place of someone who's just stepping into leadership, I think have the faith that you've been asked to do it because someone there believes in you. Don't be scared to show your vulnerability, I would advise, because it makes you more human, but also stand your ground. Not everybody in life is lovely and not everybody in life is kind. And there are people who might be jealous and might want to take you down and might not be as as appreciative of the fact that you've got this opportunity because they may think it should have been their opportunity. Mm. Just quietly stand your ground, know that you've got it for a reason and do your best. Just really stick to the principles that got you there in in whatever field or sector you happen to be in Mm. and quietly have that confidence that, that you're there for a reason and do your best to help your teams fly and bring out what's, what's special and brilliant about each and every one of them. I'm hearing some really strong values in how that shows up for you in terms of, you know, doing your best, being able to quietly stand your ground and bring out the best in people who you're working with. There's something in that sense of empowerment, isn't there, of others that brings us up as well at the same time? Mm, Yes, there's something I've really loved thinking about for quite a few years now, which is something that I I kind of describe as confident humility. Mm. Arrogance is one thing, but being quietly confident and having the humility and the grace to know that you've got something for a reason, but not being overbearing or or bombastic about it. Mm. Having confidence 
that you are where you are, I think can be an incredibly empowering thing. And it also then empowers the people around you because it is your job as a leader to help people feel very confident in you. They want to believe in you. They want to believe that, you know, you're steering the ship well and that you're making the right decisions and you're helping enable them to do their best work. And the way that you can do that is to have a quiet sense of confidence, I think, in your own abilities. I think the leaders that are too bombastic or too arrogant or choose not to make time to listen and choose not to to use coaching as a leadership tool, I think they're the ones that end up having a less fulfilling working life. Think of all the richness they're missing out on. You are not the, the monopolizer of great ideas. And the people around you will be having amazing ideas. And if you choose not to open up and listen to that diversity of thought, you are not driving the best possible outcomes for whichever company you happen to be working in, even if it's your own. You have to be open to listen. And I think having that confident humility empowers others because it it gives others a voice. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree with you. I wonder if culturally perhaps in the UK anyway, or in Northern Europe, we're less likely to stand in that power, you know, and be confident that we have arrived in that place that we find ourselves for a reason and perhaps think that's not an acceptable approach to others. I think it really varies. I've I've witnessed really, really bad behaviour and I've witnessed I've witnessed also people taking their own insecurities and kind of mishandling their own insecurity so that they end up riding roughshod over others. I've had the the great pleasure of having a couple of really wonderful bosses. I've also had some not so wonderful bosses. Mm. And I think I've always tried to learn from the types of things that I've loved that people have done with me and the things that I've seen in people who I think are great leaders. And in fact, my current boss put something really, really well the other day. He said to me, I really want the leaders who work for me to feel both autonomy and authority. Mm. And I thought that was a a really beautiful way of putting it, because what it means is there's not micromanagement going on there. There's enough sense of I trust you and there's enough sense of you have the authority to go and do the things that you need to do. But also that sense of support and ballast that, you know, I'm here, you can talk to me if you need to. And I think that. That kind of empowerment is a really, really powerful and important thing. When I think back to the leaders who I've really learned from, I mean, there was one when I was working at ITN, he's a man called John Williams, who I think now works over in Northern Ireland. And he was my boss when I was working at Five News. So I was part of the creation team for Five News back in the day. He was a real stickler for striving for the very, very best and I think I'm nat- my natural personality is I'm I'm quite a perfectionist anyway, probably to my detriment because I'm I'm not very good at kind of settling for less than doing my best. <laughs> That's brought its fair share of challenges to me over the years. But professionally speaking, he was brilliant at being incredibly ambitious. So we were working for a tiny, at that time, brand new television news station, and I was the breakfast planning editor. And I'd be dead chuffed. I'd have managed to organise getting a minister to do something on on a breakfast show on a channel that wasn't being watched by millions of people. He would say, that's not good enough. You should be getting the Secretary of State. And 
he wasn't doing it in a mean way, but he would do it in a way that made me feel, actually, you're right. Why did I settle for minister? You know, obviously, there's a kind of chutzpah about that. And you would try and you try and you try. And clearly, there's lots of times when actually a minister is the perfect person to have. And actually, the minister is a more appropriate person to have. He would try to stretch me and and push me and show me how to negotiate. And so I learned huge amounts of influencing, persuading and negotiating skills by understanding what he felt good looked like and really trying my best. And and it was great for, for a number of years working in television as a producer. I would almost joke that I would get paid for turning no's into yeses because a lot of the time you're told no when you first ask, when you first knock on a door. And I would just find all kinds of ways to try to help the person see that actually they really did want to do this after all, <laughs> or they really did want to put whoever it was, you know, the Minister or the Secretary of State or whoever forward. So it taught me a huge amount about influencing and persuading. And then the other thing about him is that he truly made me believe that I could, I could do it. And, you know, when I was stepping into what felt like quite a, a responsible job, I started managing teams in 1997 when I was working for him. And it was very nerve wracking, but he he would always make me think I could do it. And that was a very precious gift to give me as a leader. I just think that's perhaps like the the true definition of empowerment, where you genuinely see that complete belief in you by the person that you're working for, Mm -hmm. that you can do anything you put your mind to. That must be incredible incredibly enlivening and just soul-filling really, isn't it? To have that belief in you from another human being, let alone your direct boss. Yeah. Oh, and it's, it's wonderful. And I think you then go on to do your best work because you want to do brilliantly. You want that person to be proud of you and to feel glad that they've invested that trust in you. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's the way I feel. And I'm sure lots of others feel like that as well. And it the, the corollary of that is that when someone doesn't trust you, or when you haven't been able to feel like you're doing your best work, Mm. I think it triggers a a downward spiral and it can be very negative. And I think people who go through that can go through some really, really dark times where they feel that they're not appreciated and they can feel like they haven't had the opportunity to fly. Mm. So you've got to be very vigilant for sort of body language and, and for being able to sort of catch those moments when you feel someone might be in the grip. I think one of my bosses at, at the BBC described it as in the grips and some people feel like they're in the grip and they're kind of really struggling and you get yourself into a, a bit of a cycle and I've seen it happen with people where one thing goes wrong and then they get nervous and insecure and worry that they might be a bit useless or something they haven't quite got the capability and then the next thing goes a bit wrong and then the next thing goes a bit wrong and it's a bit like I mean if we imagine you know a waiter or a waitress in a in a restaurant you know something's broken or fallen off and then they try and pile on the plates and then more things start flying off the plates it's it's that kind of horrible sense of feeling out of control and it's within your gift as a leader I think to be vigilant for that and to try to help the people who are working with you and for you to try to help them catch and to to be vigilant for those opportunities. And I think particularly over the period of the pandemic, all of us have faced all kinds of challenges and it's been even harder to try to, to check in on people that you care about at home and at work 
and even harder to pick up those those checks and those tells. So I think as a leader, you've got to work very, very hard on, on helping make your people happy. I mean, I was asked actually on Monday, somebody said to me, how do I judge my own performance as a leader? I said, I really two things. Am I delivering the business objectives? And are the people who work for me happy? And do they feel like they're doing their best work? And in fact, in my current team, my boss runs a, a kind of weekly barometer where we are literally asked every week, are we doing our best work? Do we feel like we're doing our best work? And we track it and we monitor it and we ask ourselves that. And I think the fact that we've got that question on the table enables us to have very honest conversations. I love that. Are we doing our best work? And how that contributes to our happiness as well. I'm feeling a sense that attached to that is this sense of creativity and innovation that comes when we feel completely empowered and trusted and that we're doing our best work. And, and we get that sort of velocity behind us, don't we, where we can think about things in a different way. Do you see that coming out of that environment as well? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we call it flow. So when someone's in the flow, it's, it's you're so absorbed in your task and you're really flying. I mean, you, you said velocity, mm. it's that sense of you're just flying and it's it's going well, you're feeling good, you're meeting your objectives. However you're going about it and whatever those objectives are, whether it's something you have to accomplish over a five-year period or over a, a five-hour period, but if you feel like you're on the route to doing what you want to be doing and you're just absorbed, it transcends other things. And I think whatever job you're doing, I, I don't think you have to be doing something marvellously esoteric or creative or something sort of fundamentally transformative for society. We can each of us have moments in our day when we're doing something relatively ordinary in whatever job we happen to be doing in whatever sector. And actually, you can still be in flow in that. You know, it could be you're doing book bookkeeping. It could be actually you're getting a huge amount of satisfaction if you're working in the catering industry, actually getting that that pan, you know, completely sort of free of all the, the scum and the crust or whatever. There's moments when we can just get absorbed and transcend the worries and the hardships of ordinary life because we've got ourselves in the flow. Those tasks can be anything. So it doesn't have to be the kind of, the highfalutin, top level, esoteric, creative, entrepreneurial stuff. It can be the basic, providing you feel good and you're feeling happy. I'm thinking about Dan Pink and what he says about that sense of purpose mm. and, and mm. mastery. And I'm, mm. it's linked into that, isn't it? I should add his third part of his trio, uh, Autonomy there, which you've already spoken to. Yes. But I'm wondering about how organisations and leaders in particular can build that sense of purpose and mastery into some of those exactly, as you say, more mundane tasks that, you know, most of us have, don't we, as part of mm. our day-to-day responsibility. It's not all, as you say, the sort of glamorous part of the role that we might do or maybe not how do they do that how do we see big organizations building that ground up sense of purpose do you think I've seen it done really well both at the BBC and at BT where I am now and it's making you feel as an individual that you're playing your part in helping deliver the corporate purpose Mm. so at the BBC our mission was to inform educate and entertain even through really difficult times at moments at the BBC, I always would think to myself, I'm actually helping make that happen. I'm helping make that a reality. My small, tiny contribution here, even though I might be going through all kinds of hardship to get there, 
is helping deliver to that. And at BT, our corporate purpose is we connect for good. So each and every one of the little connections we make and each of the things that we do in our everyday lives helps drive us further forward to that purpose. And we've got a company ambition as well, which is we want to be the world's most trusted connector of people, devices and machines. Mm. And we're aiming for that. So that trust word and that connector word are vital for what we do. And so I spend a lot of my time and energy thinking about how do we deliver trust and what do we need to do to be in that position of trust both between ourselves as colleagues and then also for people who who use our products and services. I think if you can genuinely help somebody believe that they matter as part of a bigger entity and that what they do, whatever it is, adds up to something. It's like that apocryphal tale when President Kennedy visited the NASA Space Centre and talked to the janitor about what he did and what he was doing. And he said, well, I help put men on the moon. And I just think, yeah, if we can if we can really believe that we help deliver what the company is here to do and really believe in it. And frankly, if you, if you are working with someone you don't believe in the company purpose, you do have to ask yourself, well, what, am I, what am I doing here? If I don't believe in the purpose or if I don't believe that I'm adding up to that and, and talk to somebody about that because maybe you're not being made to feel valuable enough but each and every one of us is playing our part. And I think it's really important, even within the context of big business. And what I think both BT and BBC did very well, or do very well, is even though the gigantic organisations, I mean, my organisation, BT, has got more than 100,000 people in it. And yet within those huge, huge amounts of people, you have small teams. Your vista is within the macro, but it's actually very micro. It's within the context of the people you happen to work with every day and the little the networks within the organisation. So whether you're working for a kind of a one or two or three person startup or whether you're working for a gigantic FTSE 100, the things that help motivate you to go back to the, the pink theory about the surprising truth about what motivates us, unlocking discretionary efforts is really vital as a leader and thinking about that as you work with your teams, but also even amongst your co-workers, what can you do to help motivate each other and keep each other going and support one another? And I think helping tease out the humanity about what makes us human, why do we care about each other, making time to have conversations, which has been hard in a kind of back-to-back Zoom world. You don't have those serendipitous moments that we all loved before this all happened. But making time to to cherish our humanity, I think, really matters. I'm feeling this incredible sense of community that's coming out of the words that you're using to build that picture. There's something about going right the way back to our roots as humans and saying, actually, as we work together and with that sense of humanity, there is that sense of community within the smaller network and the broader one as a whole, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. And I'm very passionate about trying to think about inclusion and diversity of thought and trying to make sure that everybody feels their voice is heard and that everybody has a seat at the table that the Hamilton song about want to be in the room when it happens I want to play my part with the privilege that I have to try to make sure that I do give people the opportunity where I can to make sure doors are open and rooms are accessible and you know people can be part of a conversation for me, that's that's an incredibly important 
part of leadership and role modeling as well making sure that you're doing enough listening and making sure that you're opening enough doors one of my favorite people is the wonderful edwina dunn who um, started dunn humby with her husband clive they started the tesco club card and they did some wonderful work in data but what edwina is currently doing is a project called the female lead we at bt supported but it is about we rise by lifting others and i think Think about all the people that helped you get where you are now and think about what you can do to help the people coming behind you. They may be facing different challenges, but I bet you they're facing challenges. And the more you can do to try to help rise them up, the better. I think that's an incredible place to leave our conversation. We rise by helping others. We really do. Thank you so much for such an inspiring conversation today. It has been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. It's been really lovely to be here. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo.